Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going? Uh, it's going very well. How is it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else. If this is the first time you are tuning in, Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. That yeah. part is uh, the premium section of the website. But if you want uh, the free section where Jeff writes about um, investing topics, go to focuscompounding.com and click free content. Right now, that's what it's called. Maybe I'll come up with a different, better name like Jeff's Journal or something like that. But it's just free content. Free content. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you can uh, check out all that uh, um, there on the website, it is free. Jeff will, if you ever want to write about um, you know stuff related to investing, it's going to go there as well. The top left of the page, there's a little button that says "Ask Jeff." Okay, and it will go to an email that he has access to if he ever wants to pull questions to write a blog about. Because okay, that's the way that you you uh, yes, I always write. Ideas articles based on uh, ideas that I get from people emailing me. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in today's podcast, we're going to talk about the current market environment. So we are going to, as we've just been recorded two podcasts talking about Buffett, not really talking too much about the current market environment. We're going to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the current market environment. Um, but really, I just want to talk more so how it relates to stocks, right? Okay. We're not, we don't make macro predictions or anything like that. Um, but you know, you have talked about before in the past, like with your investment in Frost, there right. were some macro things that played into it in a way. No, yeah, different than yeah. you know other people may do it. But um, so you know, we have, I guess, the thing that a lot of people have been talking about recently, and probably is on a lot of our listeners' minds uh, because I get DMs about it, um, is the ten-year yield. Right, the okay. ten years been rising. There's yeah. inflation fears. Yes. Um, uh, the earnings yield being where it's at. So we can look at, if you're watching the screen, I actually have the 10 year. Okay. It's come very far, very fast, right? We're almost to uh, 1.5%. Uh-huh. Um, and I did find it was so interesting. Like last week when the market sold off a little bit, mm -hmm. right? It was down like 2% or something in a day. Right. And people were, you know, asking questions in the DMs about stuff to talk about in the podcast. I get a general consensus feel okay. by people listening to our shows and what's, right. what's on their mind and stuff. And the market sold off 2% or whatever, and like a lot of people were like freaking out. Okay. It seemed like like Twitter was very much like we're, you know, markets, you know, selling off, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, I'm, I think to myself, I'm like, wow, like this is like nothing, you know? Um, right. And it, it's interesting, like how conditioned people are to the markets just continuing to go up every single day. Not like we're a, a, a bear or anything like that, but I just thought that was kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 10 years up to almost, you know, right now, this is uh, 1.44%. We're recording on Monday, March 1st, uh, the S&P 500 yield 2.58%. The inverse of that, which is the P of the S&P 500, um, uh, 39 times. We have everything going on with the SPACs. We have everything going on with like the Robin Hood mania, mm -hmm. uh, GameStop, all sort of things like that. There's inflation worries from, you know, Fred, uh, the Fed printing in 2020. And of course, before that, mm -hmm. um, in the future, are we going to look back and say, wow, that was pretty obvious that that wasn't going to continue? Yes. That's always true. Uh huh. But in, but I think a lot of people would say now that it's pretty obvious, which is usually true too, in my experience. Like I think people in the dot com uh, believed it was crazy, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's the part of the dot com story that gets um, lost now is the speculative aspect to it that was different. 
um now because like some things like amazon and stuff had success over time it's sort of like people guessed correctly about some companies long-term growth and incorrectly about other ones i think it's a little bit more from living through it a lot of people never intended to hold the stocks for a very long time that's just that isn't what was happening what was happening is the internet is going to change the world and so i need to be in it to a much greater extent than understanding what that meant uh, in terms of did they really think there would be lots of profits for it or whatever um just that this is changing the world and so i need to be part of that um and you know they were right about that and it was obvious that the world was changing that way um so i think that that was true then and i think that there is a feeling of that in a different way now but a feeling of uh um that it, a feeling that you should speculate basically yeah do you still think that U.S. banks are one of the most interesting, you know, set of stocks in the United States right now or for investors to look at? You said that a couple of months ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't get into all the math behind it and, and, all, and macro predictions Well, the steepness stuff, of the curve. I'm talking about the 10-year. Yeah, it's good. Banks yeah. are going to be able to make hay. I yeah. Mean, the the it, environment is primed for them. Sure. It will depend on the bank. And what its situation is, um, there are certain benefits. Uh, I mean, st- a steep yield is beneficial to banks generally. Yeah, um, we don't know if that's combined with a lot of loan demand or like no loan demand. I mean, most banks make money lending. They really are not about bringing deposits and then buying bonds with them. Uh, some banks are a little bit more that than others. So without any any loan demand, you know, that's not that great. Um, the other thing with banks is I know people don't, most people don't really worry. There are a few people who, you know, are very worried about inflation and have a very clear idea of whether they think there will be inflation or deflation or whatever. Mm-hmm. Most people don't think a lot about it. But one thing that is interesting about banks, insurers, things like that, is they have this risk related to the um, how long dated their portfolio is and how sensitive it is to interest rate declines. And you can look at this up different measures of how that's calculated. But putting that aside, if you want to own something that I think can do okay, and that won't be destroyed by huge amounts of inflation or something like that, then I think financial things can be attractive that way. If you feel like, um, if you feel like interest rates could be higher in the future, inflation could be higher in the future, but you don't want to be someone who's just buying random commodities and, and real estate and things like that in places, having a real macro bet on that sort of thing. Some kinds of companies, I think, are better investments than others, and I think that financial ones would benefit from that if it's pricing in today um, a interest rate situation that's unlikely for the long term. And that was where you're talking about the macro thing with Frost. All that was is we'd had several years that sort of lapped things of a Fed funds rate near zero. And so what I really was doing the calculation saying is, look, it's an average price stock if it earns like 10% on book all the time, which I think it will do if the Fed funds rate is basically near zero. Mm -hmm. But what if one day it's a lot higher? Then it becomes a good business. So why not buy, you know, an average stock at an average price with, an abnormal interest rate situation. Yeah. Um, 
and then make money if it changes. And then, of course, the stock, you know, did the earnings did well from that initially because interest rates rose. Then it, um, they fell again, and the stock went all the way back down to where it was. Now, actually, it's happened to have gone back up to where it was before, and I don't know why that is. But um, Frost is more sensitive Frost's to lower uh, short-term Fed funds, right? And short-term. Than particular, other, yes, yeah. short-term interest rates are more important to Frost than others. You have to look at each bank on your own. There are some abnormal banks that are, have – some banks have um, liabilities that are very long-term. Um, I mean, assets that are very long-term. Um and loans and, and yeah exactly loans um or, or or bonds or they've bought very long-term bonds yeah uh whereas frost at uh, the period that i was writing a little before then had kept things very short so they just see an eye lending that gets tends to get paid back to them very quickly but also they took the deposits about half the deposit that they were getting and were buying securities but they were not compared to other insurers and banks buying securities way out there in fact for years they were keeping a large amount at the uh, Fed, probably in part because they're like, well, we, we don't want to take in a lot of interest rate risk, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but anyway, because of that, what I'm saying is that's the kind of thing I would look at is not be like, okay, I want to buy something that I know. Most people start with this idea of like, what's my thesis about what's going to happen? What do I believe is going to happen? And they act like it's hundred percent sure that thing will happen. Now let me pick the best way to play that. So I think inflation is going to take off and the economy is going to be amazing. Well, the way to play that is then you buy copper or whatever. Or if you really thought that you knew that, then you buy like certain options and those things and you leverage it up as much as possible if you had certainty about it. Because mm -hmm. that, in a sense, is the most leveraged thing possible. But if you're at all wrong about it, then you make like, you know, nothing or you've just wasted a lot Wipe of money up, because yeah. it really depended on what you were making that decision. Whereas what I was saying with Frost is like, it's actually priced okay in an environment that's like the worst environment you could imagine for it. Um, and to me, I tend to expect more mean reversion, I guess, or put more faith in mean reversion in average past levels of things than in the current level. I try to weight less what is happening today. So a lot of people will say, well, you have to discount those stocks, for instance. Well, you have to discount using the 10-year bond. Mm -hmm. But today's 10-year bond isn't the 10-year bond yield you've normally yeah. had. So which is the right one? Why is today's price better? Because if the markets are perfectly efficient and looking forward and, and all that stuff. But do you, they were, you know, if we go back to the dot-com thing, they were like, I don't know, 6% or something. So was that the right one? And then 10 years later, they were at very low levels. You know, I mean, the swings are dramatic. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that you necessarily want to put too much faith on today's prices versus past prices, you know like using inflation expectations as a spread between certain things like you do today, you know, that which is what people do. Mm -hmm. So we talked a lot about in the Buffett letters, how he writes a lot about what's on his mind, mm -hmm. right? Maybe indirectly, but you could get a feel for what he's been thinking about. Yeah. I'm just kind of curious, everything going on right now, what's on your mind? Well, <laughs> you mentioned writing things. I have written an article basically several times that i've said i don't want to publish this same topic written, same topic that i've written several times and then said i'm not going to publish it and then changed it and then said well can i take it a different angle and whatever here's the thing the article is basically you're in a bubble you know how do you think about that how are you rational about this and stuff now uh, what to do about that but the problem is there's no point in writing that article because it tells people who it some people agree with you and then it doesn't benefit them because they already agreed with you. And in fact, not only does it not benefit them, but 
it's not that I believe anything with complete certainty. So if anything, I'm pounding more into their heads of the things that they believe that doesn't necessarily even, even just adds more conviction to something when my conviction might not be a hundred percent on those things. But the second one, which has been my experience in different sorts of speculative things and stuff is that it's a hundred percent not effective in changing people's behavior at the time. Now, what I've tried to fool around with the article is, okay, what if I think about this as like, I'm writing this now to be beneficial to you later. What if this oh. is something that you can read later, like a know that it was written without hindsight, and realizing this is a report from that period. Like you went through a portal into yes. the future and gave him a letter from the past. Oh, no, 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 no. Like, I'm writing it now, <laughs> yeah. but I'm telling you, I understand that this can't change your You're behavior now, with them. Oh, okay. but I'm dating it. So five years from now, come back and read this, you know, like that. Because um, I like that. I don't. I mean, the thing is, sometimes we expect. Sometimes things are written later that say, like, how could anyone have foreseen the housing bubble or the other thing? I mean, I've lived through some things where you have to understand people do foresee these things, like really foresee them, and foresee other stuff that never comes to happen too. But um, there is an understanding. It was not like, I mean, everyday people understood very strange things were happening in housing. Um, people talk about GameStop and stuff like that, that it has nothing to do with the um, stock market people. I mean, it's people ta talking about oh, yeah. all, of all sorts of oh, other yeah. things. So I interact with plenty of people that um, talk to me in different ways about stocks now than they did at other times. Um, so there are things. Different types of people. That don't focus on, that don't focus on stocks. And yeah. it's interesting to hear what things they say mm -hmm. and what things they're worried about and stuff like that. Well, they're just buying it because the price keeps going up. Y yes. And the thing that I was writing about in the article um, is there was that line in Buffett's letter. And I had written the article before Buffett's letter. Uh, I mean, I don't know when Buffett wrote the letter, but before I read Buffett's letter. And um, the article that I was writing was about myths and how you can recognize myths. And what I wanted to stress to people is there is always an explanation given, no matter how crazy what's happening is in the market. And this doesn't even get to an efficient market thing. Even people who don't believe in efficient markets do believe this thing that there is somehow an explanation for what's happening. And my point was, if you look back at cultures and the myths that they create and stuff, the fact that there is a story about something does not mean that that story is true or false, but it does mean that everyone recognizes this is important and it's weird, and we need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so everyone needs to have some creation myth about like how the world was created and why this or that happened, because otherwise, because everyone asks that question and no one can explain it. Everyone will say, well, but then what happened before that? And what? So someone will try to tell that story in all cultures, but they'll tell it different ways. And some cultures have myths about particular customs and stuff that other cultures don't because it's unusual and needs to be explained, you know? So you can tell from what stories people choose to tell. So there are stories explained now, uh, being told now, that it is, the fact that the story is being told really does give an indication that we collectively recognize there's something strange here. Mm -hmm. And yet we try to come up with stories to explain it. You know, and I'm particularly talking about things related to GameStop and shorted stocks generally like that and SPACs and uh, Bitcoin with some other things that, that have to do with 
what you might call like green things and stuff like that. But mm. but generally things in there that happen to have these stories told about them um, that don't really make sense uh, in terms of the data that you're seeing. And so what I mean by that is it would be hard to, I think it would be impossible to guess what those prices were if you couldn't see a chart. So if I was saying to you, what, you know, if I said, well, here's what, so when I look back in some history thing about some company, I can look and say, okay, well, they they earned $3.56 in 1974. What do I think it was trading at? And then I'll be surprised. 1974 is a really cheap year for stocks and say, okay, that was a really low multiple. I wonder why that was. I don't think you could get any guesses as to what, here's the SPAC thing. Here's what they're going to buy. Here's what, what would the price be? Mm. Um, here's GameStop. What would the price be? You know, it's things that have nothing to do um, with the underlying fundamentals that you could guess, but then you have to explain the market's behavior on it. Uh, and so it's a lot of whatever we would call it, like, um, you know, if you want to call it reflexivity, like Soros stuff or whatever, but it's a lot of that, or the Keynesian beauty contest thing. It's mm -hmm. people predicting what other people are predicting about this in very, very short term too, um, which is interesting that way. Are you going to publish this letter? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I like the concept of it. Yeah. Um, because I just don't think it, it's helpful that way, you know. But it was because of the – my interest in doing this was because I've gotten a lot of emails from people recently that they've really given up on investing and gotten really into speculating on stuff and also given up on the idea of value investing or thinking of themselves as a value investor and thinking about other things. Um, that they could invest in and that they should and that they feel they've missed out on and things like that. Well, that's why I asked you in one of our recent podcasts, you know, if somebody brings you an idea mm -hmm. and you pass on it because maybe it's trading like excessively high, you just can't get there on valuation purposes right. only, right? I'm not saying like this is a net net. I'm saying just crazy mm -hmm. multiples for an okay business or whatever. And then the stock goes, you know, nowhere but north for the next year. Yeah. It's like, is that person correct? If they're speculating, they're correct. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, and this gets into, I mean, yeah, if they're speculating, they're correct. I mean, because I'm telling you, and I encourage everybody to do this because every investor says this, but until you actually do the math yourself and see it, I just think it paints a great picture. The returns of a stock over time, they do, um, you know, equal or close enough the returns that a business generates. Right. Just go do the math. Yeah. Take a go to QuickFS, download twenty year financials. It's a great way to do it, or just go do it yourself somehow and look at it. And the Kagers, I mean, the returns pretty much usually match up. And right. if you care a lot about, you know, one to two to three year returns, it's the multiple expansion, anything probably like five to ten years, it's the returns that the business actually generates. Um, so sometimes I just think to myself, because of everything going on that maybe people are more delusional or maybe rationalize certain mm -hmm. things because stocks have gone nowhere but up, you know? Yeah. And that's sure. like, it's a very tricky thing to, um, you know, be a part of, I guess. Yeah. And the thing with what you're talking about is um, the problem is the returns in stocks come in very short periods of time. Mm -hmm. So when you go out over a very long period of time, what you're saying is correct because you're smoothing it out over a 15 year period, then you can see that the business results and the stock are similar. Mm -hmm. But the idea of like, sometimes people say, well, most stocks 
trade mostly close to their intrinsic value most of the time, you know, that it's somewhat inefficient. It is an inefficient market, but not in that way. They spend far less time close to intrinsic value than you might think. And so what happens is um, that depending on when you sell a stock, you're, you're, how you remember your investment decision, whether it was successful or not, could be driven a lot by that. Um, there is someone who's uh, follows on Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, Midstory Ventures is the website. Um, did a write-up recently about looking back at if you had bought Movado about five years ago or so. What's interesting is if you'd made that investment, you'd have to be down about 20% like pretty fast, right? And then I think in the, but if you'd held for a full three years or something, even though you were down at first, then you would have thought you had a 30% Kager for those three years, right? But if you'd held through today, you thought you had a flat stock mm-hmm. for like five years. So I think people's, the same, but ultimately, what was your decision? Now, some people who speculate or who are good at, you know, what we call value trading might have said, well, I'll buy more when it goes down 20%. Then I'll sell after a few years when it's up. So three years, and that would be a success. And so like a Ben Graham investor might do really well because they'd be in it for just three years. But then I think to be realistic about it, might you have sold that first year? Might you have sold three years later? Might you have sold five years later? I think you have to be very careful about the exact decision of when you got out of the stock and say, okay, if I bought a stock today and five years later it's down, that might've been a mistake uh, or 10 years later or whatever, even if I got out of it when it was up 150% before then. Mm-hmm. Unless you're some kind of trader, which we have just nothing to do with in terms of being able to guess that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, if Bitcoin doubles from here and then it drops 99% and never again rises above being down 99% from there. Did you make a good decision? If you buy it and then sell it within a year from a double from here, mm-hmm. but subsequently falls 99% and never rises. Yeah. Um, as a speculator, I guess you did. And we've talked to people before where they're like, I made a ton of money on this yes. from the time period that I yeah. owned it. I sold it because I thought things got a little heated or whatever. And then the stock went to fall for whatever. And he's like, I don't know if... I made the right investment in the first place, even though he made money. I agree. That, and I think that's honestly a very, um, that intellect, that's approaching this situation from a very humble, that's let's, the most, let's grow and that's learn. That's really impressive when someone yeah, does that. That's the most important yeah. thing. Uh, I've sold stocks to profit that I thought was a, a mistake that I ever bought them. Um, and that's very hard for someone to do. Mm. And he did that. And there's some other people I know who, who, have done that and i don't want this to be like a a bear message or like go short or sell all your stocks i mean we're, we're buying stocks every day right um but i just think it's a stay sane message stay yeah. in your lane if i mean add some like does this actually make sense right take like the stock chart take everything out of it be like does this make sense if i was going to go buy this business next door on much some you know smaller levels would this actually make sense you know could you see that this could be a part of reality, you know? Right, and why I mentioned that, it's like, say, bringing a Bitcoin stuff. The reason why I mentioned Bitcoin is because um, you're in a period in which uh, inflation is basically like nothing um, and hadn't been for a while, in which gold is not rising at the same rate as Bitcoin stuff. So you have to tell a very specific story 
to understand why one thing that you believe is a story of value and, and that sort of stuff is rising a lot. I mean, historically, if you were like, well, why is it that this thing is rising dramatically and everything else isn't? You know, it can't be an explanation of just I expect inflation. Because if you expect inflation, then it should be happening in all sorts of hard assets and mm-hmm. things like that. And so it has to be very specific to that kind of thing that you're looking at, you know, to believe that. Um, and there's just other things talking to people. There's lots of people talk about SPAC things with the, well, can I do something where I can make some money from this? And, um, you know, how do I do that? When do I get in? When do I get out? All of those sorts of things, which they understand is speculation, but um, they view as being able to do something that is value investing that way, um, you know, almost like they're doing arbitrage stuff that they're calculating that way. Just things that are getting them away from the sort of focus that they had before about talking about businesses that mm-hmm. way. And then there's a lot of people who are interested in the real compounding things. But the extent to which they point to the stock prices is really the concern. Um, you know, so last year for some of the stocks and things we owned, um, some of them grew their earnings as faster, faster than on average, you know, than stocks that were up a lot. Mm-hmm. And so to me, my feeling is that's a good year. Yeah. Now, to a lot of people managing money, their feeling is that's a bad year because my stocks didn't rise as much as their earnings. Yeah. But I think what I care about is their earnings went up. We're on the same. I literally was just about <laughs> to bring up how, like, you know, sometimes you feel like you're on the other end of the spectrum where the business has done has grown intrinsic value like a lot. But yeah. the stock is nowhere See, near where you think it should be. But like internally, mm-hmm. which could be annoying, but internally, I think it's great because the business right. is growing. I'm like, I know over time it's going to get there. For you me, know? investing, that has always been the most comfortable position. Mm-hmm. That's the easiest position to be as an investor. It's the most stress-free and comforting and all those sorts of things in terms of a portfolio when the earnings and other indications of intrinsic value are rising faster than the stock price. You start to have problems when things are going badly for the business and the earnings aren't doing well and stuff, and maybe the price is also dropping a lot, but then you've got calculations to do about it. And um, you also do eventually have some concerns when the price is rising too fast versus the earnings. Like, you know, things were good, but look, earnings rose 10% and the stock's up 70%. I thought the stock was cheap at first, but did I think it was quite that cheap? And I guess maybe I thought it was just that cheap. But now if that happens again next year, then I'm owning a stock that's way too expensive. You mm-hmm. know, It has happened that you know we owned um, computer services and sold it, but we could have kept holding it for a while. But the thing that's the concern there is, I don't know if people realize this, that stock did really well. It did not in any way exceed my expectations. It didn't fall short of my expectations, but the business did exactly what I expected the business to do. If you didn't see the stock chart and just saw what I expected in earnings, I could have penciled them in for what I was expecting for the next three years or whatever, and it would have been what I was expecting. And the stock outperformed all sorts of things, Mm -hmm. you know? And you could feel really good about that. To me, I don't think I made some great decision about that. And I don't think it was necessarily a very bad decision to sell it. I think that it was a pretty good decision, mm. but it would have been a pretty good decision if it you know, moderately outperformed other stocks because the business performance was really what I expected. Yeah. And I don't think, you know... Um, that, but that gets back to my question of like, how do you validate your, um, uh, your decision to buy or sell you know, you shouldn't yeah. allow the stock price to I do don't. that. No, yeah. I say that you can't. Um, you absolutely can't. I mean, stock prices can be so far from accurate for so long that you can't do that. 
Um, and in particular, I mean, we could, I could go through so many stock charts that have the same pattern that you would think you're right and feel best about it at exactly the moment at which you would then have disastrous results. I was just looking at a stock where, um, they do consumer lending stuff, uh, not consumer lending, but buying up, uh, bad loans that others have made and then collecting from consumers. So debt collection. And what's amazing about it is there, the company has been through three recessions now, right? Um, or four, if you count the kind of COVID thing, but then it bounced back because it turned out not to have a lot of defaults from that. But, um, at each time it got the highest multiple on earnings that turned out to be the absolute peak earnings. And would not be reached again for like 10 years. So it's a stock chart of just down for 30 years. But it peaks really nicely. It's a wave that's going down each time because they destroy so much equity that they can't get back to the old mm-hmm. position that they were in. But um, each time you have it trading at 30 times earnings or whatever in the very year of earnings that won't be repeated. Everything mm-hmm. there, There's the most optimism about it right before it crashes. And that's the other thing that's about, you know, when we talk about bubbles and things like that, that people forget. Um, a lot of times a factor in it is the amount of time. I feel that the amount of time is the real issue. That when something doesn't work for so long, people st- or people start to then abandon that approach. Mm-hmm. When something seems to be working for so long, yeah, style drift. Then, they, then they embrace it. And so... Um, and I even think that's with normal thing, uh, things that people start to accept as normal. If interest rates stay at a really low level for a while, then people accept it as normal. Everyone thinks it's abnormal for a few years, but any trend that continues for like more than three years, people start to believe this is the new normal, this is whatever. And the thing that is troubling with stock prices for people to get over is that the if something gets speculatively inflated, the percentage drop that happens that erases the increase that you participate in happens in a time frame that is much shorter than the increase happened. Mm-hmm. So your three years of returns are wiped out in a matter of months or weeks. Um, so the last part of that goes away so fast. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so you can go back and be like, okay, so the tough thing about someone saying like how, if someone sold out in the twenties to avoid the 1929 crash and stuff like that, you have to understand how long in time that would have been. They would have probably wanted to sell out about 1926. It would have gone on for three years. Mm-hmm. But then in a very quick period, they would have been proven right, right? You know, to be worried about that. Same thing in the 90s. You would have had to have, it would have felt too expensive for a couple of years. Um, even when there's signs that something's very wrong, it goes on way longer than you might expect. Uh, when people tell stories about 2008 now, it's like, there's this weekend Lehman went down yeah. and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. Actually housing topped out as evidenced by like, you could look around and see the inventory of housing was too high. Just for sale signs. Everywhere. There were signs that housing was getting too high. Um, and subprime went bad in a big way. Really subprime went bad in ways that were making headlines. And I remember reading about it and everything at a period that was probably about a year and a half before the big decline in the markets, which then continued for like six months. So the bottom was almost two years after some people in the market realized that subprime things were going bad alarmingly. Mm-hmm. Um, and But everyone was like, well, it's kind of contained or whatever, right? So if you were shorting things and stuff like that, when that first information came out about how much of a disaster subprime was, 
and some funds got shut down and all sorts of things happened, it would be like, you know, one to two years before that shorting would pay off for you. And that's not even like a valuation thing where you're just shorting on valuation. You'd be saying every day, there's this catalyst. Look, yeah. I know it's happening every day in the news. Well, that's you know? like in the big short, right? Yeah. I always say it's a film that everyone needs to watch. <laughs> that's not a movie. It's a film. <laughs> yeah. Every American should definitely watch. So Citizen, anyone. So things will go on for much longer than you might expect. And, you know, it's like getting back to the whole saying, there's probably been more money lost on people trying to anticipate a correction than actually made on the correction, right? Profiting from the correction. And again, it's not like we're saying go out and, you know, sell all your stocks and, um, you know, short the market. I think the message that I'm trying to convey is just stay sane, right? right? Try to stay rational through all this. Does this actually make sense? And don't let just the stock price going up, um, you know, validate, your rationality, yeah, the decisions you're making. In all these cases, um, there can be really good justifications for why something goes up a lot. It's never a good reason to sell a stock just because it went up a lot or an asset or whatever it could be that you have. It, I mean, when things are cheap, in the early, uh, in the 1930s, there were some years where there were huge gains in stocks. And not only were they justified, stocks were incredibly cheap after they had the huge gains, you know? And that can happen. Uh, and for great companies, they could go up there are years early on in some tech companies and things where it was fully justified that they'd be rising 100% at a time and all that. The concern is in things that you look at and you say, um, you justify things by saying, well, I mean, here's one of the biggest ones for me is justifying price multiples based on interest rates. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because even Powell said that. It's like, well, I don't yeah. think stocks are expensive based on where interest rates are. Everyone says that. But here's the problem that I would say about that story. Okay, what do we know? All right, we know that long-term interest rates generally or interest rates in general are low. We know the Fed funds rate is low. We know current inflation is low. We know long-term inflation expectations are low. They might be a little bit higher than they were a short time ago, but all those things are true. My problem with that is that to me is one piece of information. Why are long-term inflation expectations low? because the Fed says that there won't be inflation, because short-term past inflation was low, all of those things. They're all tied together in the same way. Do you think that if inflation had been running at 5% recently, long-term expectations would be low? It's not going to make a counter indication of that. I mean, that would matter a lot. I mean, I would pay a lot of attention to that. If we'd have been having inflation of 5% a year for the last 10 years and the market is expecting 0% in the future, I'd say that's a very significant sign. But if the market's expecting what inflation was to be what it'll be in the future, that sounds like it's consistent with each of those things, right? Mm-hmm. And so the problem that I have with that is that's really just saying one thing, which is you're saying multiples are correct because interest rates are correct. But if their interest rates are not correct then your multiple is not right, you know? And I mean, I get a lot of emails from people asking about that particular question. And I just walk through the math a little bit about it and just basically say, look, you can run any DCF you want with it. Stocks are very sensitive to what rates you're picking that way. Mm -hmm. So even if you expect rates to be low for a pretty long time, the problem is that meaningfully higher rates in later periods would bring would cause a pretty major major decrease in what you should be paying. So even when you're looking at a 15-year holding period, it's shaving off 2 
of your returns in the stock with the kind of contraction we'd be talking about in the multiples just for interest rate reasons, which when you think about it means, okay, um, I mean, think about it. If I said, would you buy the stock if it was going to grow 3% less a year? Right, because that's how you should think about yeah. it. You know, mm-hmm. because the price is going to grow three percent less a year because of this contraction that would happen. Mm-hmm. And this is not predicting interest rates would go higher in a few years. I'm just saying, look, think fifteen years. What if it goes to a normal level during your holding mm-hmm. period? And so, you know, for a lot of people, it would be, or like, would you pay this price if the earnings yield was three percent lower or whatever? You know, think about it that way. Everyone always thinks they'll get out at the same multiple if you've noticed that right mm-hmm, sure there's no value investors club right up that says the stock trades at 12 times ebitda let's buy it today hold it for a while and we exit at nine times mm-hmm. but statistically there should be just as many exits above as below right mm-hmm. i mean these stocks there's no reason that all multiples should tend to go up or down over time sure so if these are accurate write-ups they should s they should predict that you'll your exit multiple will be lower than your entry multiple maybe a half the time maybe a third and it'll be the same a third of the time mm-hmm. but they always predict the same or higher a market multiple yeah higher yeah yeah but i mean the current one mm-hmm. they pick the current one no one ever says even if they're paying 30 times earnings yes they haven't readjusted it so like if you look historically at what um stocks were priced at it it would be 11 times ebit uh, not EBITDA, EBIT is probably what you would uh, would be at an appropriate level for them. Uh, for some companies, maybe EBITDA, but people will use even higher valuations now. But that is tied to the fact that multiples are higher, um, and so that's the thing that you're you're sort of taking for granted something there, you know. Mm-hmm. And it might be justified, but it's the same thing we we're saying about the stories that people tell, right? They don't need. I mean. It's a taken for granted thing about what you're saying is that basically you're taking as a given a certain level of interest rates and a certain level of the multiple. And the thing that I really stress to people is even if you believe that interest rates are what are causing low uh, low interest rates or are causing high stock prices, there's something going on in your mind with these people where they're thinking somehow I'll get out. That's the thing. And, I'll just sell. I'll just get out. Yeah. But you have no reason to believe that that the multiples won't contract before the uh, yield spike. I mean, they are related. I, they're related, but anything could happen. They could happen at the same time. If people's expectations for the future change, they could change at the same time for both things. One could happen before the other. You know, there's people obsessed about those sorts of things of which indicator comes before another and all of those sorts of things. But, you know, they're tied together. And so if you shift expectations for inflation or whatever, then you would that would be shifting interest rates a lot, uh, nominal interest rates. And then you have big changes in the multiples and stuff like that. You know, it's kind of the same thing I say about the liquidity thing, where if you have a highly liquid but volatile stock, people somehow feel like they can get out when it's like when the news hits your order will go in after the stock's already moved 20% on that. You know what I mean? Like um, if it's a super volatile stock, then that isn't really giving you any more um, safety than if you had something that you would have to pay to get out of for illiquidity, Mm -hmm. you know? I think you gave some great advice on a recent podcast and you were talking about for investors and you were relating it to the be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful quote. Mm -hmm. And you said, if you could just remember the first part, yeah. That's really all you need in investing, to be fearful when others are greedy instead of the greedy when others are fearful. If you could just remember yeah. the first part, 
um, you know, you'll do okay over time. Yes, you do okay in that. And actually, I would say the same thing. We talk about insurance things and we talk about banking things. Same rule for them. The truth is that a good bank and a good insurance company never has to do the second part. They actually never have to put themselves that far out there to be greedy when others are fearful and jump on that opportunity you'll never see again. Mm -hmm. They actually can outperform simply by completely refusing to take part in any sort of mania thing that rarely happens. Well, that's when banks get smoked. (laughs) Yeah. It's when they do crazy stuff on that. But if you were a bank, you didn't have to make really smart um, decisions in the uh, right during a recession, you all you had to do is just not get caught up in a couple of years. And that's the other thing with if you look at past bubbles and things like that, that I do want to warn people about. I do really want to stress the idea of like vintages, the amount of insanity that happens in the last few years of something like the last SPACs that there will be or something are of an order of magnitude of um, value destroying in a way that other ones aren't. So when you go back and do a post-mortem of all these things, the first things that start a craze actually turn out not to be that bad. Like you could have bought them and held them as a group and it, it wouldn't have been that crazy. Yeah. The first subprime mortgage things were, wouldn't have been that disastrous. In the 20s, the first foreign governments issuing bonds in the US wouldn't have been that bad. But the very last one to do it, the junkiest ones, all happen at the end and they're of a population that has a loss percentage that's just completely unlike any of the others. Mm-hmm. So what you realize is that things that seem somewhat reasonable at first get more and more crazy. So usually if you dig into these things, it's not just like, oh, all SPACs are bad or, or, or not, but it is that you re- if you're careful about looking at it, there's a different kind of population of it. Like say you're looking at electric car things or something. The you'll say, well, this could be the next Tesla or something. But usually Tesla, the really old company in the group, actually looks a lot better than the thing that you might end up buying as the new Tesla. You know what I mean? Um, And so sometimes the justification that people are giving, like the past example, is an example from an earlier period in a craze. It's not the most recent example. So that like your loss experience is much worse in the more recent one. Um, it's the Gresham's law, right? Bad lending drives out good. And it's like over time, you know, whatever that situation is, it's just, it ends up at so far on the other side of the aisle. I mean, it's like the chains of habit too. And, um, you know, how little steps, like it's like people becoming criminals and stuff. And a lot of times people don't become criminals overnight. It's, it's little steps over the integrity line, you know, little, 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 little. And then all of a sudden you're at this point where you're like, holy cow, I can't even see where that integrity line is. Yeah. You've heard me talk about this before. I completely believe in financial things and stuff like that, that the real explanation is risk habituation that, People don't take crazy risks because of moral hazard, for instance. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, there's so many people who went down with the companies that they're in, owning all the stock, having never sold it, and all those sorts of things. Um, yes, incentives play a part in all those sorts of things. But I honestly think the biggest thing is that you make a risky decision and then slightly more risky decision over time for a long period of time in which the negative consequences don't happen uh, now. I mean, that's the thing that's really hard is like, um, when talking to people, the problem is that the um, decisions that you're making now feel, whether it's true or not, we don't know how fast any sorts of prices move and things change, but they feel like things that have, even if you feel there's risk, when I talk to most people, they feel there's somehow long-term risk without there being short-term risk. But they're still dancing, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, right. So it's like... It's like um, a lot of drugs and alcohol and things like that where people go, okay, 
you know, I recognize a long-term risk. I recognize long-term risk if I keep doing this, yeah. right? If I do this all the time. But if I do this once, it's not risky. It's like people smoke and like cigarettes and stuff. I mean, they know. Sure, right. yeah. sure. If there's you talk no to anyone, they're yeah. like, yeah, I know I'll die for Okay. <laughs> so there's a belief in a longer-term risk thing, right? But there's a perception that that risk is not short-term in it. When I talk to a lot of people about the speculative things, I would say this is a constant feature. Uh, interest rates are a really good example. It's amazing how many people I talk to that believe interest rates will be higher in the future, but not in the really near term. So they always think that interest rates won't really go up a lot and inflation won't really go up a lot within the next three years. But if I ask them for their long-term assumption about it, it's actually very high. And um, how do we get there? But I feel like if we have another three years where things don't change, they'll still be predicting it'll happen more than three years out. There's that time horizon thing that mm -hmm. way. And so I, you know, and that's the problem with the market things that we see a lot is there is this very near term focus on it. So when something seems like it could have an immediate risk, it feels very different to people than when it's like a longer term risk. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I worry about because when I talk to people, the, the thing that I would stress is, um, like comparing what you're doing to say what Buffett's done over his investment lifetime. One thing that's really different is he's only made investments really that averaged out over a career. The things he's doing um, would have a good base rate. Okay, so even if he's buying net nets and things like that, he may, you could say, oh, look, he came close to losing everything in Dempster Mill or the preferred stock. Look, he could have lost everything in Solomon or whatever. But if you look at each of these examples, if he could have made the same bet a hundred times throughout different years, each year making one, um, there are smart things to do. Mm -hmm. What I worry about is high is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah what I worry about when talking to people is a lot of times they somehow feel like this case is going to be the successful one. But at the same time, they acknowledge that doing this a hundred times over the next hundred years yeah. would not have a good average outcome. You know, this speculation will work this time for me, but I agree that the, the as a group, if you had a group of these sorts of things, it just wouldn't work out as well, you know? And it's scary when you're rewarded for that type of behavior. Yeah, and that's why people do it then, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very interesting as compared to like, I mean, it. yeah, it. I would say way more people can be led astray by the stock market than by gambling. Because gambling is not set up, it's not sufficiently manipulative because of the need for them to consistently make money. Um, gambling systems are not set up enough to give people the kinds of reinforcement that they need to bet large enough amounts over time to really take a lot of money from them. It just A casino can't afford to let you win for a long enough time mm -hmm. to then really... Uh, take your money sure so the swings that you can have happen in financial markets i think can invite way more people in um than in gambling i think way more people are attracted to way more types of people can be attracted to um financial things that have a similarity to gambling stuff you know think eventually making a bet with a uh, negative expected value you know mm -hmm. so what's the advice what advice would you give to investors both experienced and new might be tough for new because you could tell investors, and I've spoken to people yeah. who have recently gotten involved with markets within right. the past year, and it's hard to tell them this is crazy. These times are not normal. Um, right. And, you know, a lot of people that are becoming involved with the market nowadays, they're certainly not coming at it from a perspective of, oh, I read the snowball. This makes a lot of sense. Let me go invest or learn more about investing. 
right? They're not coming at it from like a fundamental perspective. So it's really yeah. hard to talk to them and be like, this is just crazy. You know? Yes. My advice always with those things is read things from a long time ago, and especially things that were like contemporary a long time ago, um, you know, not like historical accounts of them. Because like I said, you're always going to take for granted the, the today thing. You really don't need to read about today to get a feeling for how markets work. You need to go back and read the really old things to understand what was going on then, you know, to read things from the 1990s and, and, and from 1960s and stuff like that, but also from other periods, you know, it helps to read things to realize how cheap some things were for so long and all that kind of stuff too. Um, but I don't know other than doing that. I mean, the thing that got me through the 1990s thing is I've never felt that the stock market doing anything is in any way an indication that I was right or wrong. I think it's just, I really do believe in the the real thing of the Mr. Market thing saying it's there to serve you, not to guide you. And a lot of people mention the Mr. Market thing, but I think they feel, I feel like they miss that most important part. They're guided by it. Yes. Yeah. Even in the sense of using it as an appraisal of their own stock. And I do feel like Buffett doesn't talk about his appraisal of his stocks, but I think in his mind, his valuation on a stock never has that much to do with the market value. You know, like a market multiple or anything like that. Oh, I don't know. Like that, he doesn't think when he thinks there's intrinsic value. Like I don't think he believes. Oh, wasn't I such a genius for Apple? And now I'm starting to think maybe it's worth a lot more than I originally thought yeah, when I bought sure. into it. Mm-hmm. I don't think that. And for most people, I think that they value they they use the stock market value as like marking their position to that, like mark to market in their minds. Um, and then also they compare to when they bought in and then decide whether they were right or wrong based on that kind of thing too. You know, but just to give an example, um, the, I mean, I've looked at some stuff where I would say, for instance, you would have vastly outperformed the market. We do some things in over-the-counter stuff and whatever, we buy higher quality things. But if you had bought the biggest things in that area that had lost money for three years in a row, right? So three years in a row is a really good guide that this may be a totally not successful business. Businesses do lose money sometimes, but it's quite a cycle to lose three years in a row. And it's there's not that many public companies that lost for three years in a row and then suddenly start making money in year four and were successful. Um, so these may be businesses that never make it. If you had bought that group, I think you, you would have been up multiples mm-hmm. of the market. Yeah. Um, maybe three times four times, something like that, you you could have been up 40 or 50% higher than the market if you just did that, meaning you bought nothing that was profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the, the, the thing that's hard to kind of warn people about is like, so there's some funds that have been up 100% last year or something. The history of funds that are up 100% in a year is really bad. Uh, you know, not, I don't even just mean the next year is really bad. I mean, them continuing to ever be a successful fund is really not good because of how diversified mutual funds are to achieve outcomes where you have hundred percent plus wins means you're doing something, mm. um, that, that honestly is long-term reckless. Probably. I mean, there could be ways that you completely rearrange your portfolio and make a big bet on something that was smart and be that concentrated, but see, it's not like hedge funds and things. Mutual funds have to be diversified to an extent that that's unlikely. So really things in that like all went into one kind of thing that everyone was, you know, speculating on. And so it can it's just really impossible to explain that to people that the biggest winner from the last year um in many ways is more likely not to even be durable, not to have success in the industry. I mean, that's hard to say. 
mm-hmm. because I was just thinking about it. Like, you know, how do you say to someone, well, that the nominees for best picture, you know, most of them will never work in the industry again or something. But yeah. the truth is they're less likely than other ones to even last that long because something there is very wrong in what's going on. Um, and there's just no way to stop people from doing that in my mind. Um, I mean, you can talk about it and stuff, but people don't believe it. I don't think that people believe that something that's up a lot is actually not as good as something that hasn't been up recently, you know? One thing we talk about a lot is what would a private buyer, rational private buyer pay for this business? Yeah. You know, but I mean, when we do that though, right, you are paying a multiple for business that could be, Mm -hmm. well, this is what normal companies in this industry go for. Right, but I don't use public company comparisons for them generally. I try not to. Um, So, I mean, that's sometimes what you have to do. I mean, there's really no comparable for the Burlington Northern except other publicly traded railroads. Mm -hmm. Um, But the thing is with the private business transactions, they're sort of like other assets. Maybe you want to compare them to housing or something. The the market just dries up. So what happens is like... um, when stocks get very cheap, as they did for some period in the 70s and 80s, um, people start trying to come up with ways to just buy businesses, take them private, and stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, you then can't go to a private business and buy them out. And so a lot of reasons why there's M&A and stuff between public companies is because if they tried to offer to buy someone for their own multiple, they would it would be refused. Yeah, There's sure. no way that they would sell them out. Mm-hmm. And and you can't, that's the advantage where Buffett was talking about we're a conglomerate, we can buy stocks and we can buy entire businesses. Problem with buying entire businesses is that generally they won't sell to you at a pretty stupid price. They certainly won't pe- pe- sell to you in the middle of a panic or something like that. So they, if you tried to buy, I mean, that's why he said the phone wasn't ringing off the hook during the COVID. Mm-hmm. Private businesses aren't going to sell to you in the middle of COVID unless it's literally we have no money and banks won't lend to us. We need Berkshire's liquidity that no one offers to sell their business at a fire sale, uh, you know, moment. Sure. But stocks have to trade every day. So that's the big advantage that you have from them is that they could trade every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say there's lots of stocks where I don't think the private valuation makes any sense. Um, And that worries me. The venture capital thing sometimes worries me when I talk to people because... You know, you have to kind of do the math on that. They say it's a valuation that the company got. You know, sometimes the company got 5% of that value paid into it over time to allow it to have a runway for a while with some terms attached that they be allowed to be involved in future rounds of things and whatever sorts of stuff. Um, It's not the same as a, a private deal for a company, you know. And same thing with stock things. Um, To the extent that things get sort of disconnected um, from reality, you do wonder about would someone pay this valuation for this company or is it that this is, you know, when it, from retail investors and stuff, what if this is millions of people putting a small percentage of their portfolio into something, mm-hmm. you know, making a little bit of a gamble on it, then lots of people might be willing to do it, you know? And you just have lots of people who, I mean, most people probably, invest without this concept of intrinsic value so it's just something that value investors even have and talk about it's not something that most people do i mean there are people who buy and sell gamestop i don't think that those people for a long time have been doing anything that in their thinking about it that involved what is this company worth Mm -hmm. right 
Yeah. There's a, they're buying and selling it for some other reason. That's about, you know, what they... They're and, sticking it to the hedge funds. Yeah. Or they think other people will are going to stick it to the hedge funds, so I don't actually want to stick it to the hedge funds, but I'll do it because yeah. they're going to do it because, yeah. you know... I literally saw some posts where people were saying, I don't care if I lose money. Now... We're sticking it to them or whatever. I'm like, are you kidding me? Come on. Have you read... You haven't read Business Adventures? No, I tried in high school, and I, and I like honestly, yeah. I was so bored. I, Bill Gates recommends it. So if, I don't think you would like Business Adventures, the book, and I don't think you would like the Piggly Wiggly book that I read. But Piggly Wiggly is, I mean, as soon as the GameStop, GameStop stuff started happening, I said, it was funny to me the extent to which it's exactly like Piggly Wiggly. What is that? Like P- what's Piggly Wiggly, um, what was his name? Clarence Saunders um, was the president of the company, founded it. And he had, he got upset about some things and he controlled a lot of stock. And um, he got, he wanted to really show the Wall Street people who were shorting his stock, right? So he got into this idea that he would do this by squeezing them, okay? Um, at the time, there were different rules, SEC things about stuff. Uh, I mean, this predates that stuff. So for that reason, he could offer to um, sell securities and stuff like that um, through basically advertisements, and he could also offer to make certain promises about stuff. So what he did is he um, basically offered shares to people in his hometown and in other places too uh, to support him as the hometown guy and all the company and all that against the New York interests and all that um, on like a payment plan. So buy your $65 stock today and only pay $5 for the first month ten dollars later you know that sort of thing what year is this uh so this would have been 1920s that he was doing this um i'm gonna say that's when it was yeah um earlier in the 1920s at this point um and so so he did that and he was a real advertising type guy he wrote a lot of his own i copy and everything and um so the idea was to lock up a lot of stock that way and to put on a short squeeze um, and then he obviously had to buy everything on margin. And at this point, he probably would have been able to pay $1 down to control $10 worth of stock. Cause wow. that's usually how that worked back then. And, um, then he also got people connected with him to buy some that way. And then allegedly he may have used the company's money to do things too. Um, so doing all that, they had this idea to squeeze people and stuff and they did successfully squeeze them. But of course the New York stock exchange, as it did in some other cases, changed the rules um and allowed trades to be settled over a longer period of time and uh did other things that allowed the shorts to cover basically and this would happen several times where these short things happened before and there've been some cases where people lost their company doing this um and as a result uh you know he ended up losing the company and everything and uh it went into bankruptcy eventually and all of that but it also, his whole town kind of turned against him and everything yeah. after all that happened. Yeah. But a lot of people still had a lot of faith in him and stuff after that. And there was a lot. It was written up on things all the time, you know. And actually, there was headlines in some newspapers and stuff about how he had won and how he had had this great victory and stuff. Because at that point, there had been a short squeeze and everything. And then a few um, days later, everything changed that way. Um, because he was operating on margin with all that stuff. But the idea was to create the short squeeze that way. 
And then, you know, the as I mentioned with the Buffett thing, the Northern Pacific, same sort of thing where if there's a short squeeze, you have to pay any price that there is to be able to um, pay back and when there just aren't any shares and there weren't any shares in either of those cases. It kind of sounds like Elon's 420 buyout um, that he, you know, that whole thing that happened a couple of years ago when he said Tesla was going to be, you know, funding secured at 420. Yeah, and then, of course, you get in trouble with SEC things and stuff with that. But, yeah, you used to be able to um, basically sell stock and like he did. Um, but it, it just reminded me of it because the story of the way it was covered by the press, that's all that I mean about it. Um, it like, the GameStop stuff became a whole thing because then sure. it drew attention to it in the press and all of that. Yeah. And that was the same way that it happened there where it became a national story. It became, like, a it. Main Street versus Wall Street Yes. And there's also just other things about like the name somewhat recognizable to people. That's a common factor in many of these sorts of stocks. It was a very common factor in the Piggly Wiggly thing. It was that someone was, uh, um, it was a well-known sort of thing. So, and then the fact that there's this crazy stock thing going on with it. I wonder how GameStop, like the executives feel through all of this. Well, one of them left okay. and I actually know a little bit about someone who owns a lot of the stock there. Because uh, I researched a company he was involved with before that he sold out to PetSmart. Um, the Chewy guy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. owns like, what, 10% of the company or something? He owns a lot, yeah. yeah. Um, Did he sell any of it? Not that I know of. No. I I, they haven't recording. dropped an offering. They haven't done anything. Yeah, so I would expect... That's what I'd be doing. If I was an executive and I had like this fortune, I'd be like, can I leave now and then go and, you know, I don't know. Oh, can you leave? Yeah. yeah leave I mean, I assume you might have been pushed out. I mean, the problem when people always say these things about to do offerings and stuff, of course, is the lawsuits that will be involved sure. in that and yeah. whether people will get in a lot of trouble for that, for doing those sorts of things. There's ways to try to protect yourself. I mean, there are a lot of safe harbor things. If you just put out, their hope is that if you just put out something that says, you know, our stock is a terrible investment. Don't buy it. Um, Who tried doing that? Hurts. You know, everything like that. Hurts and then tried doing that. AMC's done it, yeah. But on the other hand, it's just like bankruptcy. I mean, I think AMC, I mean, I think they diluted 85% yeah. of their stock or something by doing it. I mean, that's basically like just taking a haircut on debt. A lot of people have been saying that about GameStop. They're like, why haven't they, you know, raised more capital? Why haven't they raised more capital? I'm like, I honestly don't think they can. They're I mean, trapped. if you were on the board, would, you lawyers vote, are, would you vote yeah. against it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, if your lawyers are well, telling you, you know, don't do it, this is going to create a ton of lawsuits. I mean, me for you. There are some people who sold stock in some of these things. Um, you know, I saw some a company that I had looked at it years ago, um, which got caught up in this whole GameStop uh, sort of craze, and um, they had some insiders who sold some stock. And I mean, I think it's they it, it bother me. I wouldn't be able to sell stock in a situation like that, but. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I think the market creates an environment today and stuff where people think about people being faceless and stuff and just, it, it, it's okay if I can do what other people are doing. As long as it's not egregious, it doesn't matter how bad my behavior is. But, you know, you're selling stock that you know to be caught up in this situation, which is inflating the value of your stock for reasons that have nothing to do with the value of it, and you're selling out of some of it. I mean, in this case, I won't say the name of it. It's the family company, you know, to sell to people like that. I mean, you know, even if it's a little bit, you're cashing out in this little way. Mm -hmm. you're, you're just making money off of someone who's, you know, delusional in some way, and you know that as an insider. So, 
you know, that that to me is tough, but these sort of environments create that, you know? Yeah, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us here today. If you want to um, read content going back to 2004, 2005, go to focuscompounding.com on the free content section of the site. You do not need to be a member. You can get all of Jeff's content. I am in the process of still uploading a lot. I'm probably like 10% through just been writing for a long time online. Uh, but to get access to that for free, go to focuscompounding.com. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much to everybody for the support. And we will see you in the next podcast.